a carbon pipeline, a powerful presidential endorsement, and more access to museums in South Dakota. From SDPB Radio, it's Wednesday, May 24th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we talk landowners and lawsuits. Is a carbon pipeline true public use? And how might eminent domain change the face of farming in certain parts of the state? Our Dakota political junkies today provide analysis on some key political announcements. What might Dan Allers bring to the local Democratic Party? And what does Senator John Thune's endorsement of Senator Tim Scott for president mean to other Republicans? Eric Helland is with us for a look at what's in bloom this South Dakota spring, plus museums for all, what that means in South Dakota. That's later in the hour. We're live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Well, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, you can now stamp your mail with the face of a furry, feathered, or scaly endangered animal. The new stamp sheet features 20 species, and the Great Plains Zoo and Butterfly House and Aquarium in Sioux Falls is participating in conservation efforts for two of those species. Zoo CEO Becky DeWitz returns to the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls to talk about the black-footed ferret, the red wolf, and the stamp sheet. Becky, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. I spent so much time on the black-footed ferret story this morning that I... (laughs) <laughs> almost ran short of time because what a fascinating story that is a very South Dakota story. I want to talk about the stamp set first because you were part of this event in Wall, South Dakota. Oh, what is the partnership about? Well, frankly, it occurred because of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So AZA was invited and yeah. Dan Ash, who's the president and CEO for the AZA, um, because I'm here in South Dakota, and I'm right now a board-elect, and um, he asked me to participate on his behalf, which was a fantastic opportunity for us to talk about AZA, the impact AZA does have on endangered species, but as well as what we're doing right here in our great state of South Dakota and the Great Plains Zoo and Butterfly House. People don't always think about zoos and conservation, although that really should be one of the first things that comes to your mind. Tell me a little bit about conservation programs at the Great Plains Zoo. Well, at the Great Plains Zoo specifically, um, I, can I dial it back a little bit further first and yeah. just say with Wildlife Conservation Society and the Bronx Zoo, we would not have the American Plains bison today like we do have. And so that iconic mammal, which is now our national mammal, is because of the work that zoos did over 100 years ago to make sure that we could save what was remaining of wild bison. In the Bronx. Introduce them at yeah. the Bronx. <laughs> yep, so take them to the Bronx, yeah. take them back to South Dakota. And so that would be one of the most... Um, the first programs that I would say, and um, maybe not necessarily concerted like what we do today for conservation action strategies, but definitely was the beginning of all of it. And so at Great Plains Zoo, we do a lot with conservation. Um, We strive to at least achieve 3% of our operating budget in just conservation action, which not all zoos and aquariums are able to meet that ideal standard, and it's not a requirement, but it is something that we all set out to do. And so at our zoo, we have our new Dakota Skipper Breeding Center that we're currently constructing. We are going to be working with a prototype species in that facility this year. And then ideally next year, we'll be able to work with the Dakota Skipper itself. But you don't want to perfect your husbandry and caterpillar growing 
with an endangered species. So we are working with a very similar species that is not endangered to perfect okay. our methodology. I was going to say, what is a prototype species? So it's a very similar species. Very similar species. Um, the Dakota skipper is endangered because why? This is an insect. It, it is. It's an insect, and it's actually a very important prairie pollinator. Um, they do not migrate like what you see with the monarch butterfly, so it is an insect that actually hibernates and then reemerges, but um, it thrives in lawn prairie gla- grass, and it needs the cone flowers. And so we are not seeing it in the South Dakota landscape, um, have not in quite a 15-plus years. Mm-hmm. And so they're still trying to understand exactly what diminished the population. Habitat destruction and loss, invasive species of plants is certainly part of that. Yeah. Um, but it's it's finding good prairie lands to reintroduce them. So we've been partnering with the Minnesota Zoo since 2021 um, on their work with Dakota Skipper, and they challenged us to say, you need to breed as well so that we can both be breeding, which also helps us diversify and ensure the sustainability of those different animals that we are working on. Should there be a catastrophic loss at either location, we want to have preserved stock. Interesting. Tell me a little bit about the black-footed ferret because it was gone entirely, vanished, Mm -hmm. so we thought. Twice. Twice. (laughs) Twice thought. (laughs) Now there's a self-sustaining colony in the Badlands. There is. Um, What is the zoo's role in bringing back the black-footed ferret? So right now what we're helping with is field conservation work. So we go out, we help with U.S. Fish and Wildlife agents to do spotlighting so we can get some census of the black-footed ferret in the wild. They are doing some trapping, some vaccination work, some medical diagnosis work as well. And so it's really just through that partnership with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and then also our South Dakota Game and Fish people that we're able to do that ex situ or in the field efforts to actually help that species. And ferrets eat 90%. Prairie dogs. Yes. So when the prairie dogs have the plague or when ranchers eliminate prairie dogs because they're rodents and pests, the ferrets also suffer. What else am I missing about the problem with self-sustaining black-footed ferret populations? That'd be the biggest one is just the prairie dog being its primary prey. And so when we do have situations where prey is not plentiful for the prairie dog, I'm sorry, for the black-footed ferret, um, that causes problems. However, if there's overpopulation of the prairie dog, that's where you also have this disease situation. So that's the intricate balance between Mm -hmm. prey versus predator, which is critically important for any ecosystem and its health. And they be an apex predator on prairie dogs in the wild. And so with a black-footed ferret, one ferret on average eats approximately 100 prairie dog in a year. And every rancher I tell that to gets very happy. So they are (laughs) our little friends. Um, We often refer to them as BFF in our zoo world, and I think that's indicative. (laughs) They are our little best friends forever. (laughs) That's lovely. um, But then there's also animals that predate on the black-footed ferret, too. So you do have coyotes badgers, um, even some raptors that could potentially predate. Right. So how do you ferret. raise in captivity a black-footed ferret or a BFF that mm-hmm. can survive in the wild and learn how to defend against, I mean, there's challenges to that. There are, but um, I would say the Black-Footed Ferret Conservation Center, which is located just north of Fort Collins, mm-hmm. they've perfected it. And they do an excellent job. And so all of the stock that is being used, I shouldn't say all of it, but the great majority of it is coming from that conservation center. And so they are specifically raising them to be wild. They are not humanizing them. They are not desensitizing them to humans. We want them to be wild animals. And as zoos, we can help with the scientific efforts related to research and management. Um, But I would like to have one 
an ambassador animal on display so people can see this right. amazing creature. And um, we don't have any black-footed ferrets on display in the state of South Dakota, and yet our state is the most successful when it comes to the reintroduction of this important predator. And so I'm very excited, and we're in the early stages of planning what that could mean. But to highlight some species right here that are in our own backyard that we should all be very proud of to have in our great state of South Dakota. Becky DeWitts, we're going to have to have you back to talk more about these programs, maybe invite some other scientists uh, around the table for that. But for today, thank you so much. Check out your United States Postal Service stamp sheet and learn about these animals. Thanks for stopping by. Always. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Summit Carbon Solutions is looking to use, in part, eminent domain to build a carbon capture pipeline through the state. The company says they have easement agreements with more than half of the landowners on the pipeline's route, but they have also filed more than 80 condemnation lawsuits against landowners who have declined their agreements. We'll talk with some of those impacted landowners and commissioners from counties on the pipeline's route today. And tomorrow, SDPB's Evan Walton will bring you more on this story. Suzanne Smith is a county commissioner at Spink County. She's with me on the phone. Commissioner Smith, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Good afternoon. Ed Fishbach is a landowner from Spink County, and Craig Schoneman is a landowner from Brown County. And they're joining me from SDPB's Tom and Danielle Amund's Foundation Studio at Northern State University in Aberdeen. Ed, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Craig, welcome as well. Thank you, Laurie. I'd like to start with the landowners and in general, what kind of company you're working with here, what your communications have been. We know they have said publicly at uh, Downtown Rotary, for example, that conversations are always open. Call them. We want to talk with you. We want to work with you. More than half the landowners have come to satisfactory agreements. Tell me your personal experience, Ed, and then we'll ask Craig the same question. Well, there, <clears throat> that statement that you just said that they repeat often is pretty hollow based on their actions. I mean, I judge somebody on their actions, and uh, they have maintained from the beginning publicly, and Suzanne will vouch for this over and over again at our county commission meetings, that eminent domain would not be a issue for them because they would get 100% voluntary compliance, which they can't get. Um, we've maintained all along the intended to use eminent domain, and now they've proven it. And what's so egregious about that is that they're enforcing eminent domain and they're doing invasive surveys on landowner property right now when they don't even have a permitted project. Um, unless they know something we don't know, I would think that you'd have to wait at least until you have a permitted project, but they're going ahead right now and confiscating landowners' property. Hmm. Craig, your personal experience with them so far, just in, in general, the tone of the communications and how that's going, and then we'll ask a little bit about what this will do to your operations, to your land. But first, how has it been to work with them? Thank you, Laurie. And our communication, you know, started way back in August of 2021, and we had an open communication uh, up until, you know, you know, we, we weren't in agreement on the surveying process, and I wasn't going to allow them to survey without compensation, and um, they didn't agree to that. They, uh, and then we went, um, you know, we had an open communication, I'd say, till about a year ago, and then uh, the, I would say the communication um, uh, ceased. 
I have reached out to them, and uh, since then they've uh, filed condemnation papers on our family uh, for our land, and uh, that's where we're at now. All right, so condemnation for people, let's explain that in a little bit. That's just where they can say, as I understand it, um, that they can take this part of your land. They have to give you what is fair value for the highest and best use of the land. How does condemnation work in real life, though? (laughs) That's the Wikipedia definition. uh, Tell me how it works, Greg. (laughs) Thank you, Lori. My understanding of condemnation is the the first hearing will be is if they can use the condemnation process, Mm -hmm. they'll go go before the court. Then once that's determined, then they go through the eminent domain process where they actually go in there and take the land, and which is um, goes before a jury trial of your peers. And... um, um, that determines the highest and best use or the value at that point. So it's a long, um, drawn-out process, um, not anything that we're looking forward to. But at this point, uh, we don't feel that they can use condemnation, and we're going to challenge that uh, in court. I think that's the real process here that we need to determine is can they come in and uh, you know use condemnation? Based on uh, the fact that this is not a true public project, based on the value that you're seeing, you don't think they can use condemnation based on what, Greg? Well, right now, the, the, obviously, the South Dakota law says they can. So we're going to challenge the South Dakota law. You know, okay. the, the legislature has deemed that they can come in and use, that it's a public benefit and they're a common carrier and that that allows them to use this process. Um, the law has never been challenged. The, the law is the law until it's challenged, and that's where we're at at this point is because it's not for the public use, which um, condemnation should have been in our Constitution is laid out for, is why we're going to challenge that. Right, and you're arguing it's not for public use because this is a private company? It's not for public use. Um, the, the, the CO2 that they're using is simply going to be stored uh, underground in western North Dakota. There is no public use for this CO2. Okay. Um, Ed, anything you want to add to what Craig said about, especially I want to pivot into this idea of, you know, where is this going to cut through your land and how would it impact either your family or your operation? Well, right now, um, from what my understanding is, which we we have a hard time believing if it's actually true, it's been shifted off of my home quarter where it was originally supposed to go through it's been put about three quarters of a mile east of me I still have other land that it's going to be right up against but they are avoiding me um, personally now so they don't have to negotiate but they've moved it on to some of my neighbors and I have the philosophy that it's if it's not good enough for me I certainly don't want to push it on my neighbors either I would never do that to them I never asked them to move it Um, I just don't think it's a good project I think it should be stopped um, and just to follow up on something Craig said, um, we have a there is a judge in Iowa that has ruled that the law is unconstitutional in Iowa, and he has they are stopped from doing the surveys and enforcing the eminent domain right now until that's resolved, and we are appealing the rulings here in South Dakota, you know, to the Supreme Court that a couple of local judges, one in Lake County and one here in Brown County, gave rulings that allowed them to go ahead and do the condemnation. Mm-hmm. That's under appeal right now. Yeah. I want to bring Suzanne Smith, County Commissioner of Spink County, into our conversation. She's with us on the phone. Commissioner Smith, what has this company been like to deal with? Oh, boy. I'd have to say they, you know, like Ed said, you don't really believe what they're going to tell you. And um, we have someone that comes to our 
commission meeting every week and gives us reports. We ask for a specific map and there's a vague map with a line drawn through it. You don't know townships, you don't know sections, nothing. And there was a little altercation yesterday where I told her, you need to sit down and a little argument going. And that's just what they like. They like to stir the pot and get people fired up. And that's what's going on right now. What is the role, Suzanne, of the state PUC? Um, to Craig and Ed's point, this is not a permitted project yet. Those hearings, as I understand it, are not until the fall. Have you had mm-hmm. contact with public utility commissioners? Do you, what do you know about that that's relevant uh, to this story right now? We know nothing about it. They threw it back to the counties, stating that we need to uh, do our setbacks, um, write up our ordinance. We have a moratorium on right now, and Summit is suing us right now. Mm-hmm. Um, PHMSA has not even got their regulations out, PHMSA, which is a federal government. Okay. So I'm a little disappointed with the PUC not even speaking out on this, even a little bit. Craig, I want to get to one more thing, and because our time is short, and we may have to have people back and continue this story ongoing. But when we talk about fair market value and any kind of compensation that might happen in the future, as I understand it, and I know uh, what Ed said about your neighbor's sentiment, how long a farm has been in the family, what you paid for the land, what you might owe in debt against the land, none of that is considered. Um, what's one of your know, greatest fears or greatest concerns about if you are not successful in fighting this off? Well, the the values, again, you're, you're playing your cards in the hands of your peers as far as negotiating. You know, for us, um, we're a mile south of the Aberdeen ethanol plant. We're a half a mile from subdivisions. Um, four miles west of town, uh, the quarter we have out there, my brother and I own, we've got uh, development on the north and the south end of that uh, particular half section and I think what they need to consider is what's the the value and they're they're placing the same value as they are 20 miles outside of Aberdeen in in their negotiations and we just felt that they weren't reasonable in that and looking at it I mean uh, some of our land's been in our family 124 years Uh, none of this land that they're affecting has been but our our family's been within a mile of it 124 years I don't know what's going to happen it's my it's our family's responsibility to make sure it's there for future generations and, and be cognizant of development out there. I, um, I don't foresee myself developing it, but I don't want to hamper it from further development for further generations down the road. And so I think some of that is just the negotiations of, of the value um, uh, of where we're at. And there is a risk on my part. There's a high risk on our family's part when we go to condemnation or eminent domain. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts, Ed Fishback, that you want to leave listeners with today? Well, I think the one thing we may have to remember, too, this is a hazardous material pipeline. This isn't like a water pipeline or natural gas or anything like that. Uh, this is in a highly concentrated uh, gas or liquid to get it to flow through the pipe. And this is an asphyxiant. And if this pipe leaks, which it did in Satarsha, Mississippi, you could have people being rendered unconscious, even killed, and as well as livestock. Um, we had uh, uh, a first responder from Satarsha 
testify at the Public Service Commission hearing in North Dakota, and he testified that they had victims they found from that burst, from that line, three miles away. So this is not just a normal pipeline either. And this company has never built one of these before. They're an out-of-state company. They are backed by foreign investors, which they refuse to release the list of their investors, and we believe that that should be public information so we know who is behind this and who is financing this. I think we should have every right to know that, and I would wish that our PUC would ask for that before they would grant a permit. But I think that's an important issue that I think the media should be stressing upon this company, is let's let's see who's behind this thing and where all this money is coming from. Um, as a note to listeners, uh, SDPB's Evan Walton has a story on this tomorrow. We'll air that on our show, and you can find it online. I did talk to Summit Carbon Solutions early in this process to an engineer about all the way this project works in their terms, and that is posted on our website at sdpb.org news. And also we did reach out to Summit Carbon Solutions again and did not hear back this time. We'll keep trying and keep that conversation going. Suzanne Smith, County Commissioner of Spink County, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Ed Fishbach from Spink County, Craig Shoneman from Brown County, Ed and Craig, thank you both for being here. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Lori. Thanks, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, the 2023 legislative session may be over, but South Dakota politics march on. From summer studies to changes in party leadership to presidential endorsements, there is a lot going on. Our Dakota political junkies will help us digest the biggest headlines. Tom Dempster is a former South Dakota state senator, and he is with me in the Kirby family studio in Sioux Falls. Tom, welcome back. I'm delighted to be here. And Mike Card is a political scientist and professor emeritus at the University of South Dakota. And he is joining us from SDPB Studios on USD's campus. Professor Card, welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, let's get started. And we're going to start with you, uh, Dr. Card, because uh, how about Senator John Thune endorsing Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina for president? Senator Mike Rounds making the same endorsement, but John Thune shows up for the campaign announcement. A lot happening there. Where do you want to begin with the significance of this announcement and Thune's presence? Well, um, it it's a question of whether Donald Trump is able to run, and I think Senator Thune has identified, as well as Senator Rounds, that they believe that Tim Scott is the real deal, is the quote that was attributed to Senator Thune. And uh, Senator Rounds noted that Scott is a leader who can unite the country and compared him to Ronald Reagan. Pretty high praise. Yeah. Uh, but I think a lot of it depends upon what uh, Donald Trump does and whatever happens to uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida, who who's gained a little bit in uh, morning consult polls. Morning consult is a marketing firm that occasionally gets asked to uh, evaluate where people stand in the polls. And Governor Sanis was 30 points behind uh, former President Trump, but has moved up six points, but to be down by 38 to, to former President Trump at this point. But those are polls. It's a long ways away. Uh, we've got news this week that former President Trump is likely to have to sit for trial starting uh, next spring during the heart of the primary season. 
So it'll it'll just be interesting more than anything else. But I think it also says that they're that our two senators are not endorsing uh, Governor DeSantis. Uh, it might be because of DeSantis's uh, uh, I don't know how to call it negative overtures to business, fighting with uh, the business community in Florida and not paying much attention, as well as uh, some some challenging personality issues that Governor DeSantis has. Right. It feels early to me, Tom Dempster. Is it early or is there no such thing as early anymore? 24-7, raising money and campaigning. No, there's nothing early about this at all. This is a huge deal. Um, It sets a stage uh, for other Republicans to follow. Mm. It says says to our two courageous United States senators in South Dakota that we do not want uh, we do not want Donald Trump as our nominee. It's interesting who they endorsed, um, uh, Tim Scott. It's also in- in- interesting who they didn't endorse. This preempts any in- any endorsement of Governor Christie Noem running for president. It's a huge deal. Hopefully, it opened. Hopefully, in my opinion, <laughs> it uh, it opens up the gate for others to follow for sure. Uh, Tim Scott to is follow with endorsements or to follow with announcements to to follow with endorsements okay. uh, to follow with endorsements away from Donald Trump. Donald Trump produces a great deal of angst against normal Republicans who believe that he is not fit for public office, fig- and and figure that he certainly cannot win the, uh, the the presidential election. Great deal of angst. Tim Scott, oh Lori, this tells me that there's such a thing as hope. And dreams <laughs> in South Dakota politics, and Tim Scott is a guy that can stand uh, can stand at a podium, doesn't need the microphone, fills the entire room. He's a man that is full of hopes and dreams. Uh, he says about himself, he says, "I'm a conservative, and I'm a Christian, and you may have noticed that I am black." Um, he openly talks about the I think it was last year, the seven times last year that he was stopped by law enforcement for a no traffic offense. He's one of those politicians, Most poli- many, many, many politicians, and you see this over and over again, want to be the man or want to be the woman. And you can see it in, in their character for sure. That's not Tim Scott. F- uh, Tim Scott wants to, uh, will take issues square on, face them square on, focus on those priority issues, and get everybody in a room working together. No, it's not too early at all for this kind of endorsement. It's very significant. It's huge. Professor Card, I'm also wondering if Senator Thune and Senator Rounds, but particularly Senator Thune in this case, is also sending a message to the American media after the famously uh, disastrous, I think I can use that adjective, town hall that CNN did with the former president, Donald Trump. Is Senator Thune also saying something there that the media should pay attention to? Well, I think Not that they will or won't. Yeah. I'm just saying, <laughs> is he trying? Yeah. I, I, I would suspect uh, that it, it's trying to direct that we need to pay attention to Tim S- Senator Scott and that there is hope for our nation. And I, I think uh, just we, we need to move forward from Donald Trump. That's what he's saying. Okay, it also brings up speculation. It closes the door on any endorsement of Governor Christie Noem, whether she's running for president or vice president, which she has not ever said that she was, you know, doing. Um, 
if you're speculating about Senator Thune running for president, that speculation is over. Does this open the door, Tom Dempster, for speculation about whether Senator Thune could be a vice presidential candidate for Tim Scott? I hadn't thought about that, Lori, and I think <laughs> um, uh, this, uh, Senator Thune, uh, as, as he is shown over and over again, has re is remarkably talented, has such a, uh, such a high degree of equanimity, shows that you can handle risk, shows that you can handle controversial issues and not let it destroy you. Um, Senator John Thune, I think, can pick and choose and be about whomever he wants to be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's branch out into some other topics. And I wanted to ask you, Tom Dempster, about legislative summer studies. We had Senator Gene Hunhoff on yesterday talking about a long-term care summer committee. And uh, you have been in the state, uh, state House, State Senate during the years where this has been discussed before. Is it just business as usual to say, like, we just talked about this in 2007 or 8, we were going to talk about it in 2015, 17, and now here we are in 2023 talking about it again. But one of the questions I had for her that I'm not sure she could answer because it's speculative is what's changed, you know, in the past, some of these uh, pieces of legislation have been brought forward and lawmakers have voted them down. Is anything different now? Because we're living with the consequences of some of those bills that didn't pass. Are we just going to be living with them forever? <laughs> Do you know what I'm asking? Any, any sure. insight in your personal experience on summer studies and, and previous long-term care conversations in peer? Oh, sure. Um, some problems, some problems you never solve. You just manage them. You just said hope, 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 and now you're just going to say we can't solve it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm saying with a great deal of perseverance, <laughs> sir, <laughs> and, and 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 with a great deal of talents that you can manage some problems successfully. Yeah. And the best we're ever going to be able to do with long-term care, because of the way the industry is set up, is try to manage it successfully. Uh, it the long-term care industry is built very much like our healthcare industry. Uh, it's the insurance companies and those with resources that subsidize those who are not able to pay for their own care. The same thing is true with long-term care. It's a hidden tax on those people who have long-term care insurance and who have the capacity to pay for their own long-term care. I think the rates that they pay are anywhere, I don't remember what it is, uh, but can be two to three times what the nursing homes pay receive in Medicaid reimbursements. Um, I've, I'm aware of some families, very wealthy, I mean wealthy families with a ton of ranch land and all of that, that have just been stunned at the amount of resources that it took for them to pay for their parents' care because of that subsidy. Mm. So, and, and the state, of course, is constrained because they're not, they're, we as a state of South Dakota are, are unwilling to put more money into Medicaid, more money into, into long-term care. It's always a push and shove, it's always a balancing act will never be solved, can just hopefully be managed more successfully than what we have. Yeah. One more topic to quickly address, and we'll start with you, Mike Card. Dan Allers has been named as the new head of the state Democratic Party. He's a familiar name to a lot of people. He was on the Appropriations Committee um, in the South Dakota State Legislature before, so he has a strong financial background. Any thoughts on the challenges in front of Dan Allers that do you think uh, we should talk about today? Well, we the the major challenge is uh, 
the national politics versus local politics that, that we face in our state and almost every state faces. And, uh, you know, when even when we're dealing with real individuals, real candidates who we know, we see at the grocery store, we see at church, yet the political parties tend to label each other as as, as the most negative that they can, and we don't really find out what they stand for. And so part of uh, Mr. Ayler's task is going to be to get real candidates to run for county commission, for uh, state legislative seats, as well as the more statewide seats, to really build the party up, uh, as it has been done a number of times in our state previously, but to do, you know, recruit candidates, train the candidates, get the candidates to talk about what their personal preferences are, to remind voters of, of the issues that they share in common, to uh, show appreciation for people who share their stories with the candidates. You know, my, my own experience has been rather almost humorous to me because I would run ideological questionnaires for students in American government and state and local government and the students get really frustrated because I'm half Democrat. I don't want to be a Democrat. Or I'm half Republican. <laughs> I don't want to be a Republican. And, and we have big, big tent parties in South Dakota. Yeah. But with the infusion of national politics, uh, we, we tend not to focus on the actual issues. We focus on the party label. Mm. All right. We're going to have to leave it there for now. More on this later. Mike Card and Tom Dempster. Uh, Dr. Card, thanks so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Senator Dempster, thank you. Delighted to be here. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. It is springtime, and you know what that means. It is time to break out your gardening gloves and get to work in your yard. Are you seeing any early blooms? Should you be seeing any early blooms? Eric Helland is here to talk about what's blooming right now. He's president and owner of the Landscape Garden Centers in Sioux Falls, and he's with me now in the Kirby studio. Hey, welcome. When are you guys going to have a studio that's outside? Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, Can we it is broadcast from your, we'll broadcast uh, from the Landscape perfect. Garden Centers, Love and the it. cat will come by, yep. and we'll... We have three of them, yeah, yes. so, yes, yes they the will cat be all and over. And we'll sit by the, like, the water, and mm-hmm. think of the ambient oh, sound. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, when I was broadcasting, we're already out. The producers are already looking at me like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) We're already talking about whatever we want to. When I was broadcasting from home during the pandemic, I would open my windows, and then you could just hear all the birdsong and stuff on the radio. I do kind of miss that. Yeah. Although, uh, not to disrespect the outstanding acoustic quality of the SDPB studios designed by our fabulous engineers. Yes, so. absolutely. Here's but every once engineers. in a while, yes. let's do it outside. Um, <laughs> so what's blooming? Well, um, things that are typically very, very traditional, the lilacs are going to be coming into bloom probably here within the next week or so. Mine are done already. Really? They popped wow. and now they're withered. Yep. Okay, so you might have an older variety of the... Ancient. Of, yeah, So that would be, <laughs> but that would be right. It's like right a on? tree. Yep, and it's probably real, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. been around. So those would be tra- traditionally be finished blooming, and then a lot of the newer varieties are just going to start to bloom. Okay. And then there's a couple other varieties that will actually bloom in June. Oh. So So those, I could put in new varieties next to my old one, and I would have yeah, a little weeks, bit longer. Of, yeah. weeks of blossoms mm-hmm. going down the row. Yeah. Ooh, I like yeah. that. That's appealing. So 
Um, of course, we have no worry about any frost. So annuals, pack in all of your pots and containers full of annuals. Uh, that is absolutely uh, hit that hard. And then also get your garden. Most people probably have their gardens in, but it's not too late. Mm-hmm. Still get all your pepper, I mean, all that stuff, because it's going to be, so far it's been awesome for growing. Um, yeah. Because we could use a little bit of rain. rain yeah, we need a little rain. Yeah, yeah. The, the warm, everything's warmed up just beautifully this year. This has nice. been one of those years where it's just gradually warm up, cools off at night, and things just love that because it gives them a chance to push out and then recoup and then push out, recoup. But now what we need to do is really watch the watering, and mm. we're gonna things are going to require more water because we're um, basically using up all of our subsoil moisture because of things are growing. Okay. So hopefully we'll get a shot of rain here soon. Right. Um, but we've also had Mays before where it's dry and June becomes very wet. Yeah. I you lost half my peony bushes. Did you? To what? Um, it's down from six to three. I don't know. They're just not there anymore. Really? <laughs> I don't Because those much. are the other ones that should... Uh, that's, yeah. uh, that, they're starting. Yeah, they're, start, yeah, they're starting. Yeah, they got the little the knob, the marble. Do I need to water those? Uh, if it's been there for a long time, I wouldn't worry no, about it. If it's just recently year. planted. I just put them in last year. Yeah, yeah I'd give them a shot. Okay. It's not going to hurt. Go over some of the basics of watering again. When you're going to water, water uh, for a long period of time at a really slow trickle if you're just pouring it right out of the garden hose. Okay. Okay? Just trickle, trickle, trickle for like 20 minutes, one area, so it doesn't flood, it all soaks in, and you should be good for sometimes weeks. Um, uh, When you have things that run off, when water starts to run off, then it's probably full or that area is saturated enough that it doesn't need any more watering. All right. Morning, Um, night? Um, it doesn't matter if it's not it, going up in the well, air, I mean, like for evaporation. Right. Yeah. The best time to do it is early, early morning or morning. But, I mean, face it, water it if it needs water. And don't, I mean, you should do it, not be doing it at night because what happens is if it's too wet going into the night, then it can, funguses and all of that other stuff can okay. happen. But, hey, we're all busy. Just get it, <laughs> just get it watered. It's a space reality. Right, yeah. Right. Every one of my trees that I thought was girdled, I waited like you told us last time. Okay. I did not cut anything away. They're all coming back. They're coming back. Good. This is I'm very That's optimistic about this. And so hold tight, um, not to be the bearer of bad news, but sometimes what will happen, we'll see a flush of growth and we'll get warm and then all of a sudden it won't be able to bring up enough moisture because parts of it have been girdled. So you might notice parts sure. of your plant not quite surviving, but certain the, and you'll, we'll kind of We'll coach each other through this over the next few weeks because yeah. that's what we're going to end up seeing. There's a lot of yeah. people, all this flush of growth because it has enough energy in it right above where the mice chewed or right. rabbits chewed. And then all of a sudden it's going to go, oh, wait a minute. Can't get Got it. it. Can't get okay. it anymore. Yeah. And a note to listeners, you can send your questions in in the moment at sdpb.org to ask Eric. Yep. Um, and, and I'm not... I am famously not the world's best gardener, so my questions are not going to be as specific as listener questions, so I really mm-hmm. want to make sure that listeners know they, yeah, and they can, can send, send them in, in those questions. Yeah. During the week, because if yep. you guys can't send them, then send them over, email them to me, and then I'll, yeah. I'll respond back. Absolutely. What else sure. are people doing for their grass and lawn? Is it time to seed? Is it time to yep. fertilize, water? Yep, fertilizing. Um, uh, fertilizing, everybody's probably put on their first... Um, dose or first step of lawn care, which is basically the crabgrass preventer, because you do that right before the lilacs bloom. Okay. That helps prevent any weeds or weed seeds from from actually starting to grow. So that helps everything out. Um, the other thing is watering. Yes, I'd start watering maybe once a week, maybe twice a week, depending on how big of a yard and how much sun it's getting. The other thing is 
when you're mowing, you now everybody loves to mow. It's like, okay, jump that deck up to about four inches until we start getting rain because that the taller grass will shade itself, shade its, its roots or its neighbor's roots. And uh, that'll help keep the ground, the ground cooler, which then requires less moisture, which requires less water, which then also requires probably less mowing in yeah. theory. Yeah, I'm all for less mowing. Yeah. She says deceptively because someone else who is wonderful to me is currently mowing my lawn. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Are they using a scythe? Or Being, <laughs> I don't care what they're using, Eric. <laughs> Just to get the job done. Get her done. And God bless you. Right. Yeah. Eric Helland, again, send us your questions for our gardening and growing segment, which are just kicking off again for the spring and summer in the moment at sdpb.org. Thanks, Eric. Well, it is no secret that South Dakota has fantastic museums spread across the state, and now access to those museums is expanding. This summer, for state museums, four state museums, I should say, will offer free or reduced priced tickets to low-income families through the Museums for All program. One of those museums is the Museum of Geology at South Dakota Mines in Rapid City. Kaylee Johnson is the museum's assistant director and is with me on the phone. Kaylee, welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Also with us, Crosby Kemper, director of the Institute of Museum and Library Services. That is the institution that coordinates the Museums for All program. He is also with us on the phone. Crosby Kemper, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. It's great to be with Kaylee, too. Excited to be with uh, uh, one of our museums. Don't you just want to go to the Museum of Geology at South Dakota Mines? I have not been there yet. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. I must know everything about it. But I want to start with you, Crosby. Tell us a little bit about this program. Is it new? Is it every year? How does it work? It's been uh, going for about five years uh, and uh, predates me, but uh, it's uh, created uh, by us with the IMLS, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, in association with the Association of Children's Museums. And uh, the, the whole notion of the program uh, is to encourage and help design uh, programs individually in museums uh, uh, for uh, low and moderate income people, uh, basically using the metrics of the SNAP program uh, for free or reduced uh, ed, uh, admission, making making it going to a, a museum that much more uh, e that much easier uh, and, and 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 cheaper for them to uh, to go. Yeah, Crosby, I always say that I have. At least, oh, probably more than 50% of my education has been at public libraries and museums. What's inside these cultural institutions that really can open the door, that makes it worth opening the door to more people and making it more affordable and accessible? Well, Kayla should tell you that in the Museum of Geology, because I'll yeah. bet they've got some pretty spectacular uh, uh, things in the in, in the museum, but that's what that's what it's all about. Is these incredible things that are in uh, in museums. Kaylee, the Museum of Geology, a hundred years anniversary this year. Do I have that correct? Yep, we opened our doors to the public in 1923. We've actually been around since 1885 when South Dakota School of Mines became a school, but. We didn't open our doors to the community until 1923. 1885, that's before statehood. 
Right. Yep. <laughs> tell Absolutely us about great. yeah. Tell us about that early collection. What was in it before it was open to the public? What how, what's the the seed, the genesis of this museum space? Yeah. So when the School of Mines was founded, uh, at the same time there was an individual named Gilbert Bailey who donated a collection of over five thousand rocks, minerals, and fossils to the school to create basically like a, a teaching collection that could be used by students to learn about the natural history of the area. Mm. Um, so it could have been, you know, anything from like local rocks, minerals, fossils. And then, you know, up until 1923, we started collecting fossil specimens from the South Dakota area, particularly in the White River Badlands. So we have a lot of cool mammalian specimens from around 30 million years ago. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your interpretation and, and curation, you know, things going on exhibit. How do you help people understand what they're looking at and the significance of that? Yeah. So uh, we're actually in a process right now to update our exhibits and kind of take a step back and see where we're at. Um, so we're trying to gather feedback from the community and things like that. But we have things like, um, you know, educational panels and, uh, just information that people can read. We also offer guided tours as long as they're scheduled in advance. Um, we try to be as accessible as possible to people. We're hoping uh, maybe down the road to have like a, a guided booklet and maybe some audio tours as well to our museum. Um, so we're really trying to make it accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah. Mr. Kemper, I used to work at a museum and one of the things that um, I took with me were the staff members, the professionals like Kaylee, who are not only caring for artifacts, managing new donations, engaging with the community, but also like dealing year by year with how things can be reinterpreted and represented to the community based on uh, you know, politics, new information, um, new uh, new standards of best practices. Talk a little bit, Crosby, about the, the people who run these institutions and the behind-the-scenes work that they're sure. doing. And it, yeah, and it's, it, it's, it's tougher and, and tougher for, for, for the reasons that, that you mentioned. We're, we're constantly reinterpreting our history. Yeah. So, you know, you, you've got in South Dakota the Crazy Horse Monument. You know, it used to be we just had a monument to Custer, uh, but now we have monuments to, to, to both sides, if you will, in the, uh, the Little Bighorn. Um, and, and that's because our, history, our view of our history, the view of the majority in history, I'm sure Native Americans were, were always looking at, uh, at the history a little differently than it was in our, our textbooks. But now we want, we want both perspectives uh, uh, on, our, on our history. And so there's a constant reinterpretation. And then the other, the other thing that we're, we're going through um, is a, a recognition that there are a lot of people uh, who don't have the opportunities that many of us have had, those of us who regularly in our childhood would have gone to museums, gone to libraries. And, and museums and libraries are struggling with some success, but we need a lot more to reach out to those people on the other side of uh, all of our divides who haven't had the economic resources to have the cultural resources, which are part of the resources, as you indicated, for your, your lifelong education and lifelong success. 
Uh, and so we're, we're all working to, uh, to do that. It's why our Museums for All program is, is so important. And, 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 and there are a large number of South Dakota museums, the Discovery Center, the Children's Museum, the Butterfly House, et cetera, that are uh, involved in it. And, uh, and, and, we're, and we're grateful for their participation because that's a reaching out uh, to, uh, in, to families and particularly to the kids who wouldn't have these great experiences in these great museums. Yeah. Kaylee Johnson, for people who want to take advantage of Museums for All, what's the process for, for your Museum yeah. of Geology of, of Admittance? Yeah, very quickly. we got about 30 and seconds left, yeah. Of course. For us, it's actually quite easy because we are a free admission museum. Um, we do have suggested admission prices, so they don't even have to really show it to us. We already, we're free to the public, so it's pretty easy for us. Yeah. And for those other museums, uh, Crosby, is it bringing your there's SNAP a, benefits card? A, or yeah. Sure. There's a Yeah, you could do that, but it, there's a website, uh, Museums for All, you could go to. You could just Google that and get, and get to the website um, uh -huh. or ask your local museum. Yeah. yeah. We will put a link up on our website as well. So go to Museums for All or sdpb.org slash news. Crosby Kemper is director of the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. And Kaylee Johnson, Museum Assistant Director for the Museum of Geology at South Dakota Mines in Rapid City. Thanks, Kaylee. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. You too. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you on tomorrow's program. We will look at front lines once upon a time in Fallujah as we have passed the 20-year anniversary of the beginning of the war in Iraq. And then also a new book, The Good Enough Job, will ask about work and what it means to you and what happens when you prioritize it over prioritizing your life, and how do you reorder everything as you rethink what you want to do with your time. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>